All right, well, here we are back again, and I want to lead us in prayer and then into a topic that may not be easy, but I think is very important for us. So pray with me. God, thank you for the chance we have again to open your word, to look into what the Bible has to say about issues that we face, uh, realities that not only we face in our generation, but others have as well. So give us wisdom as we study today in Jesus' name. Amen. Think of Pollyanna, uh, that ridiculous movie that uh, talks about the preacher and his daughter. I think it was his daughter. Um, I suffered through it only once a long time ago. Uh, talking about happy texts, right? The happy texts of the Bible. And, um, of course, Pollyanna was trying to tell the pastor that's what he should preach is the happy texts. Uh, well, we can't just preach the happy texts of the Bible, particularly when we look at so much of Scripture that deals with themes that are hard for us to process, but so critically important. And uh, the text I want to take you to today in the Old Testament is one of those texts. But I need you to bear with me because, as with all of the unhappy texts in Scripture, they're there for a good reason. A reason that ultimately is for our hope and for our future and for our good. And in this case, this passage, I think, will be helpful for us as we get near the end, Lord willing, of this shutdown And as I reflect upon and help you reflect upon how this COVID-19 crisis has surfaced the topic and the issue of death that has really separated people into two camps. And I'm hoping that you as a Christian, if you are a Christian here today, that you would be absolutely squarely 100% in a distinctive camp than the rest of the world. The world is responding to threats to their health and well-being and their mortality uh, with anxiety and fear and a kind of um, a panic, actually, we've seen in so many people that uh, should not be a part of the Christian life. And I'm hoping from my perspective to see that we are not going to fudge on this. We're not going to slide into some kind of of reflection of the world's panic, because as we think about this concept of death, that uh, we need to see in Scripture is a uh, distinguishing feature among Christians, how we view this. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, we're told that we are to be, as Christians, freed from the fear of death that we do not fear it. Uh, And unfortunately, this is the kind of thing that uh, puts our mortality front and center. People talk about pandemics and dying and all these, you know, stats and charts and number, uh, you know, aggregate numbers, sequences, all these things that that we think, hey, wait a minute, uh, how do we as Christians deal with this? Well, for one, we deal with it differently than the world because we've already dealt with it. We've dealt with it in our minds. We've dealt with it in our our theology. We've dealt with it personally. And that is important so that we can stand clearly and firmly in the camp that says we are not afraid. Uh, We are no longer held captive in this enslavement to the fear of death. And so I want you to see, I mean, let me take it even further, right? I'm already in the negative topic. So in that passage, it says that there's something about Satan who has that power. There is that that fear, that power of the enemy. There's something about you, I, I, I'll say it strongly, that shows you're in league with Satan, right? Think about that. If you are afraid of death. I mean, no one likes the idea of suffering and pain, right? No, we don't like that. We may not like the idea of dying. I get that. Um, but we recognize that death itself has been dealt with in our theology. And I mean that not just abstractly. It's been dealt with in our theology personally. 
either that or you're not a Christian, right? Either that or you're just, I don't know, this is just some kind of self-help program that's got a little Jesus, you know, shellac on top of it. But real Christianity puts all of us individually face-to-face with the reality of our mortality and how that mortality has been dealt with through the ministry the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, so I want us to have not just a lack of fear about death, and this is going to sound odd, but you know the passage in Philippians chapter 1, that we should see death not only as some enemy that's been vanquished, but death for us, has we've, vic- we've been victorious over it. To use the, the line in Philippians 1 is that t- to die is actually gain. Paul says, me, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Think about that. This is, is so radically different than the rest of the world. They have nothing else but this life. This is all that they have. So I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to Psalm 90. And frankly, it is a sad song, a negative song, right? Just like on your playlist, you've probably got some songs that are sad songs. And the reason they're there and the reason you identify with them is because they, 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 some way minister to your heart, to your life. You can fully feel the weight of them. And, and, and that's what the Psalter, the Old Testament songbook, uh, includes. Not only triumphant, joyful songs, but songs about death. And in this case, you want to talk about facing death. Uh, this psalm, it's the oldest psalm, the psalm of Moses. It's Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, we have someone that had to squarely face death. Let me give you the contextual background to Psalm 90. Uh, as you turn there, remember the Psalms are a collection of songs, and many of them are attributed to David uh, and his musicians. But we have the oldest one, Moses. That's the 15th century BC, by the way. Moses, David, uh, you know, is the 9th, 10th century. So this is hundreds of years before David. But this collection of songs that was held in the temple, of course, and built the Psalter was uh, a song attributed to Moses. And Moses is living during the wilderness wanderings. Not only is he the one who leads the people of Israel out of enslavement in Egypt, but he brings them to the front door of the promised land, a place called Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 14, and the people fail the test. Just to give you some historical background to remember all this. You see the 12 spies go in, 10 of them come back, they're afraid, they get the people afraid, and basically that fear is a fear that they're going to die in the promised land because the armies are so big and the people are so big and everybody's so healthy and and they're just afraid. And so they say, God, you said you'd give us this land, you'd give us victory, but we don't believe you. And God had had enough, and, and really, you know, in his righteous anger, his indignation over this, uh, he responds as the king, as the judge, as the father of the people, and he says, you're done then. I want to give you some numbers background, by the way. Uh, the end of Genesis ends with 75 people in Abraham's clan, his descendants. Now, he's supposed to be a father of a great nation. Well, it wasn't very big at the end of Genesis, but we have a gap there. And the beginning of Exodus, we have time for them to multiply over 200 years, and they're having a lot of children. Think about our nation, right? I mean, think about how old our nation is. You can, you can have a lot of children in, in a couple hundred years, and so they do. Now, pushing 300 years, they've got time here, and they build a nation. We start out in the book of Exodus uh, that is big. It's 2.5 million people by the time we start the book of Exodus. So you've got all those people, and they're there. They've been multiplying, and, and they're in Egypt, and now they're enslaved, and now Moses leads them out. And so we have a huge nation. It's like, I mean, not quite as big as Orange County, California, but it's a, it's a big group of people. 
And that big group of people, when they failed the test at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 14, God says, well, you're going to die in the wilderness. That is everyone over 20 years old, except for two people that were over 20. Sunday school grads, you're saying them out loud right now, right? Who are the two people over 20 years old that did not die in the wilderness? Well, the two that would lead them into the promised land when Moses dies, and that's Joshua and Caleb. You're right, Joshua and Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb lead them into the promised land after the whole generation, here's what God said, of those over 20 years old die. Now, if we just take rough estimates of what we're talking about, if you've got a nation of 2.5 million people that Exodus says we have, they go into the wilderness and God says, okay, everyone over 20 is going to die. I mean, you've got at least 1.2 million people that are going to die. And how long, think about it, how long were they wandering in the wilderness before they got into the promised land when Joshua crosses the Jordan River and they go in and take the land? Oh, 40 years. So do the math on that. I did the math on that. You ready for this? You want to talk about someone facing death on a daily basis. Uh, here are the stats. Let me give them to you. You got 1.2 million people. That's just a rough estimate, conservative estimate. That's 30,000 people dying. If you're going to have a 1.2 million that are going to die, 30,000 people a year. That's 2,500 people a month. That is 83 people a day. Right. Think about that. This covid thing over the months that it's been going on tracking in Orange County, we've got three point three million people, uh, just over 100 people as of this recording and that have died from this. They're having that many people proportionately more than that every single day dying. Talk about a pandemic. Death was everywhere in Psalm 90. And so this psalm starts out with an establishing verse in verse number one, and then it gets into all the realities of the death that is taking place. Now, remember Moses and Joshua and Caleb, they live to be old because at this particular time after the flood, again, I don't want to get too technical here, but you think about, I think I've talked about this recently, I think in the second Peter studies, but you think about how the lifespan of people just, just tanked after the flood, but it started going down. So by the time we get to Moses and Joshua and Caleb, I mean, the average lifespan is still over a hundred. I mean, they, they live a full life. They're living to be a, you know, a, in Moses's case, think about it. He had a 40, 40, 40 breakdown of his life, 120 years he lives. Uh, Joshua's, I recall, 110. So you've got these guys living well over 100. Well, in this passage, it talks about uh, people dying at 70. And that's like us talking about people dying in their 40s or 50s, um, because we're a long way from the original copies of Adam and Eve, right? Not to mention the hostile environment after the flood. The post-flood world is killing people off a lot faster, and it you know dipped down. And now, you know, when we say, we read this passage about, this is the passage where we get the statement about how long people live. Um, and uh, at least we think about it, I'm reading verse 10, our years of life are 70, uh, or even if by reason of strength, 80. And we think, oh yeah, that's written about us. You know, that's that's how people, long people have been living. That's not true. At the time this was written, in the time of Moses in the 15th century BC, average lifespan was still over 100 on average. I mean, that was just, that was happening. Well, not here. Right, They're dying at 70. Why? Because everyone's being killed off in a 40-year period of time. Everyone over 20 years old, which is, I'm just saying, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 million people. So they're having 80 to 100 funerals a day. Now, and I, I understand that's just an average. They had people dying in groups, the Korah's uh, Rebellion, and there's other things happening, plagues. But overall, you're, everyone you know is dying in a, in a four-decade uh, period, except for these young kids. So... 
That's a lot of setup for this passage, but I want to look at the passage now in Psalm 90. Not to overwhelm you, let's not read the whole thing. Let's just read it like a verse at a time and make some observations, okay? Um, let, me, let me label this first section here. I'm going to give you three main sections to this uh, sermon. Number one, let's write this down. We need to face death. And by that I mean we need to look at square in the eye. All Christians have done that, right? If you're a real Christian, you've done that. You've thought about your mortality. You've faced the reality of our mortality, that we are vulnerable, that we are, our life is a vapor, that before God we're nothing. Well, let's start with that here and just read verse 1. Well, verse 1 is an establishing verse here. Uh, actually, verses 1 and 2. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. I'm reading now. Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Right? Everyone clings to you. It's poetic language. It's a song. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, which are really old from our perspective, look at those mountains, right? They're old. Or even be, or, or, or ever you had formed the earth, right? Poetic language. Well, and the world. Well, from everlasting to everlasting, you, you, you are God. You, you've always been around. So, our dwelling place in all generations. The generations come and the generations go, as we'll see. He's going to focus on that. But in these two verses, we talk about God sits outside of that, outside of time. He's eternal God. As the Bible says, he was, he is, he is to come. Uh, you know, Jesus talking in those terms before Abraham was born, I am. And he talks about in the book of Revelation, right? the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He is uh, the eternal one, the triune God, the eternal God. Well, we are so small in comparison to that. But I want to recognize that when God creates us in his image, this is the first observation under this heading, we need to face death. We need to realize that that was not a part of who we were as creation, as God's creation. In the garden, at least in terms of the intention of the purpose of human beings, was for them to obey and live, to live on forever. Well, this human life on earth in a physical container in a fallen world comes to an end and it comes to an end because of sin. And that sin is an intrusion into this plan, at least the revealed plan of God for them to obey and live and they die. So this is a death becomes a natural, an unnatural in, intrusion into the plan of God. Because made in the image of God, we reflect, as Ecclesiastes says, that desire for eternality, right? I mean, we want to keep going. We don't want to die. The only reason people want to die is when their life is horrible or when they're, they're in a massive pain, you know. And I know we talk about it as like, oh, it's a natural thing, right? Don't let the world give you that line. That's just a line of nonsense that, you know, death is the most natural thing. It's the most unnatural thing, right? Death is a part of life. When you hear that, Roll your eyes really hard way into the back of your head. It's like, what? Right? Nothing could be more antithetical to life than death. So death is not a part of life. Okay, let's just get real about statements like that. It's just nonsense, right? It's just nonsense, foolish. The reality is we as human beings that experience the gift of life, being made in the image of God, God sets eternity in our hearts, and we're like, man, we want to keep going. God is a God who had no beginning. We have a beginning. We have a, a finite beginning. But on this timeline, we like we want to continue on. And so we will. But we have to go through this transition of a death, this death that has been an intrusion of a consequence to sinful behavior. And I think we need to recognize that. So if you're taking subnotes here, we need to we need to realize death, facing death as an unnatural intrusion. It's an intrusion not a part of at least the revealed will of God to obey God and to live. They disobey God. They die. All the progeny, all the the, the uh, descendants of Abraham, of uh, Adam and Eve, they become uh, subject to death, as Romans 5 says. So we have to grapple with this as an unnatural 
intrusion into life. And so that's okay. I mean, that's one of the reasons people hate it, right? We hate death. And of course we do, and we should. It's an enemy, First Corinthians 15 says. But we start by realizing, okay, that's why we don't like it. And when grandma lives, you know, to be 90 and dies, and people go, oh, she lived a nice full life. The only reason people are like that is usually because, I mean, it is because there's some kind of pain, or there's some kind of immo- immobility, or there's some kind of, uh, uh, you know, some some disease or something, right? You know, no one looks at spry grandma who's 90 years old and happy and baking cakes and coming over and playing with the grandkids and going, well, you've you've lived enough now. Just get off our planet. I mean, no one thinks in those terms. So uh, we want, we love people. We want people around, right? We, 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 people that we love that are people in our lives, we don't like death, the separating all that. So that's just some sobering reminders about, about life. So we face death. We face death in light of the fact that God is the eternal God and being a reflection of his image, right? We long for eternality. But instead, look at verse 3, you return man to dust. That's your decree in Genesis 3. And you say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are are but as yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, which was a huge death of an entire population in the world. And now they're seeing that here replicated in the desert, you know, admittedly, you know, 80, 100 people at a time a day. Uh, Talk about the funerals they're going to. Think about it, burying people in the desert. And it says, um, you sweep them away, uh, they're like a dream, right? They're like grass renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Let's make this personal. Um, this pestilence, this disease, this pandemic that we're encountering didn't result in the things that we thought it would. I mean, frankly, I, I, at the very outset, thought I would just wonder how many people I know. I mean, the way they made this out to be, and of course, I'm assuming it was in good faith that they thought it was going to be that bad. I thought, man, we're going to bury a lot of people in our church. I mean, the church our size, I thought I'm going to be doing a lot of private you know, shut down um, family-only memorials and, and funerals uh, because I thought a lot of people we know are going to die. Well, it didn't turn out that way. But that fear that people think, oh, man, that, that could happen to us, this is the reality there. And the thing that it should make us remember is it's not just in pandemics, but if we didn't have a pandemic, we, we don't see 300-year-old people walking around. We, we're all going to die. So I would say this. We face death not only as a uh, unnatural intrusion into what God has at least said in our hearts is something we desire to continue on, uh, continue on in the flesh. We don't want to physically die. But secondarily, as something that is in light of God's bigness, right? It's something that's soon and it's something that's inevitable, right? If you're taking sub notes, I guess that's what sub points here on your notes. That's what I would say. Face death is something soon in your life and something inevitable in your life. That is what the Bible would have us do to think about the inevitability the reality of the fact that you're not going to die. That, and again, this happy sermon, Pastor Mike. This is great. No, it's good. It's important, right? Why are these sad songs in the Bible? Why are these hard truths and hard texts in the Bible? Because we're going to get to the end of this, and we're going to see this is about giving us hope. But it starts with us realizing the inevitability of our death. Ecclesiastes book, um, I've told you before my birthday, September 17th, that's the day we always start reading the book of Ecclesiastes, which is always a nice happy birthday gift to me that here you go, you get to read about how vanity of vanities all is vanity. Well, 
all of this, the theme is under the sun. Under the sun, if this is all there is, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, then you ought to pity us uh, more than all people because this is just not, this is a, a, a joke, right? I mean, you're going through life, you're collecting and amassing a bunch of stuff, you got a few decades at best of good health and vitality, and then you get sick and you get old and you get arthritis and you get bald or whatever it is that happens to you, and and you leave all your stuff behind, and it's just vanity of vanity. All is vanity. Our life is so short. Uh, things keep going. The things that were are going to be. I mean, just read the book of Ecclesiastes. You get that picture. Well, at the end, of course, we see that there's something more than under the sun, and he gets to that in the last chapter, But and there's hints of that throughout the book. But the idea of thinking clearly about that can help us when we do face pandemics, can help us when we have threats of, of, of our well-being and our health and our mortality. We don't act like our neighbors because we haven't thought about it. We've thought about it. Man, we think about it. As uh, Jonathan Edwards, one of the most brilliant American-born uh, theologians of American history, I mean, he, as a 17-year-old, wrote down in his resolutions that he would think often of his own dying, right, of the day of his dying. He, he, he focused on that, which, of course, is something our passage is going to tell us to do as well. But before we get to that, let's get into these next few verses and in verse number 7 and tell you that uh, there's something here, again, that's going to lead us, this is transitional now, to the hope of how we don't have the same reaction to death that the rest of the world has. Verse 7. Uh, they are brought to an end by your anger. Again, there's contextual history here, and that is that they are being judged in the wilderness. By your wrath, we are dismayed. And they were, right? They, All these people are dying. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in light of your presence. And you got to read between the lines in... Numbers 14, and recognize, well, of course, these were secret things in their heart of saying, we don't trust you, we don't believe you, God, we don't want to do it, we don't want to risk our lives. Those things are never stated. All they said is, wow, the 10 spies came back and we believe them. So let's not go in and take the land. Um, these were the secret sins of the people who'd seen all of God's provision. Think about how they had broken out of Egypt and Pharaoh's armies and Here they weren't willing to believe that God could take them into the next step. That disbelief, the secret sins of their own heart, now everyone was paying the penalty for it. It was set before them. It was clear. Verse 9, our days pass away under your wrath. Uh, We bring our years to an end with a sigh. The years of life are 70 or even if by reason of strength, uh, 80, which was short in that, that time frame in the Old Testament. Their span is but toil and trouble. And it was a lot of that. Some people think this might have been written during uh, the enslavement in Egypt. I don't think that's the case at all for a number of reasons I've already stated. But even there, they can think, oh man, when we were you know, in Egypt, um, it was hard there too, even though they started to complain that, hey, at least we got to eat leeks and onions by the Nile River, and now we're out here eating manna. So they're all complaining, and it's hard. They're in the desert, and they're moving through with very limited uh, food and All of this is just like, things are hard. Why is it hard? Because of their iniquities. God is judging them. Uh, They're soon gone and we fly away. Life is going to be over. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And therefore they realize God is holy. We are not. There's iniquity and sin. God is now punishing us for it. And I would say the second thing we need to consider is we, we think about death. We face death. We face the reality of death is that we need to, in light of this theological underpinning in our passage, we need to prepare for it. 
which is the whole point of the Bible. Whenever there is temporal suffering, it's a reminder of the fact that there could be something so much more. As a matter of fact, the punishment that we deserve before a holy God is the fact that there is is called the second death, right? The the reality of that judgment is something that is the the second go around of suffering. The toil and trouble is nothing compared to that toil and trouble. It will be so much worse. And Jesus illustrates that in multiple ways. But the idea in our passage here is think about your sins and the consequences it brings. And we can think of that in a temporal sense, or we can think about that in an eternal sense. And that's exactly what we ought to think. If we're going to get rid of the fear of death, we need to think in terms of our own lives saying, can I deal with the problem of my iniquities and my sins? Now, there was no getting around this in the judgment God brought on that generation in the temporal issues of their sin. But guess what? There was something eternal that God had set before them in the picture of the Passover, that that lamb that was slain and the blood that was put on the doorposts as they exited Egypt was the reminder that because of the innocent dying, there could be forgiveness for the guilty, and God would then pass over the judgment that you deserve. This is the picture of the gospel. So we faith death by seeing it for what it is. It's an unnatural intrusion, something inevitable, and something in light of the big picture coming soon for all of us. We've dealt with that. We know we're going to die. Well, when we die, what we don't want to deal with is our death. I mean, our our punishment for our sins. So we need to, as I put it, fully prepare ourselves. We prepare ourselves first by thinking about the problem of sin. The problem of sin is that the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, which really is secondary only to, I mean, secondary to the realities of God punishing us because of the sins we commit when we face God face to face. It wasn't just that, Adam and Eve would die one day. It's that the day they ate the fruit, they did die. They died in the sense that they died relationally and God was no longer, you know, copacetic with his creation. God was no longer in harmony with Adam and Eve and Adam's hiding and he's shameful. Of course, there's problems. Sin has made a separation between you and your God. Isaiah 59, 2. That's the picture of the problem of what sin does. So our iniquities and our sins, I cannot take them back. Right, I did them, you did them, we're sinners. And how do I think about the fact that one day I'm going to die? According to what we've studied, it's going to be inevitable and relatively soon. And I don't like it. It's an unnatural intrusion. I face the reality of those things. So how do I get ready? I get ready by recognizing while I can't take my sins back, God will forgive them. And he promises to forgive them if we would trust in the provision, the Lamb of God, that was slain, as Paul put it, the Passover lamb that has been slain, or as John the Baptist put it, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that God would be willing to punish Christ so that we would not be punished ourselves. Uh, yeah, we're going to have all the temporal reverberating effects of sin in this world because God said you're all going to get sick and you're all going to die. And it may happen in a period of time if there's a terrible pandemic or a horrible earthquake or a huge you know, tornado or whatever it might be. There's seasons of concentrated death. But what really matters is the second death. And as it says in the book of Revelation, if we trust in him, if we're the overcomers who put our confidence in God, we will not be hurt by the second death. Right? We're protected. And as I like to illustrate it in terms of uh, those fires they had in the prairies back in the day, uh, the dad would get out there and it was, I'm sure, a mind scratcher, head scratcher to a lot of the young kids as dad, as the fire was on the horizon coming, you know, being swept through by the winds, he would burn a, a circle of fire around the house. 
And the idea, of course, just like they light backfires now, our, our forestry uh, firefighters, they do that so that when the fire gets there, it's already been burnt. I can burn something that's controlled so that when the fire comes, it works its way right around that house and the house is protected because there's a place where the fire has already been. That's the picture of the cross. That's why I like to illustrate the cross by an umbrella. There's a place, right, where the absorption of the punishment has already been. God's judgment has been on Christ. If you would get under the shadow of the cross, so to speak, if you would get into the place in relationship and in league and in alliance with Christ, then that's the place where God has already judged your iniquities and your secret sins. They've been paid for. And so to prepare for death, I've got to say with a clear conscience, I have confessed my sins to God. I have laid out my sins in honesty. I'm willing to see sin for what it is. That's confession. I'm willing to turn from it as imperfectly as we do. That's called repentance. And I'm willing to trust that what God has done in Christ's suffering has paid completely for my sins. That when he cried out to Telestai, it is finished, I'm going to believe it, unlike the people in the wilderness at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 14 that did not believe it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to trust it. And therefore, you know what? I'm ready for death. I'm ready for death because when I meet my maker, I'm not going to say what the scared people of Orange County and the rest of the world say, and that is, I hope I am okay. I hope I'm going to go to heaven. Well, I assume I am. I know people that are worse than me. That's nonsense, right? You cannot possibly think that you're going to meet a holy God and not be consumed by that consuming fire. The only way for you to be safe with the holy God who created you is to see your iniquities laid on Christ, to see a place where the punishment of God has already been. That's the transaction. Now, I've explained that. I think I've explained that simply. I've even illustrated it with something I think is easy to understand. But it ain't about you praying a prayer, not about you going to church, not about you walking an aisle, not about you lifting, you know, your hand up in a crusade or signing a tract, right? We try to turn this into some kind of formulaic method, but you need to ask yourself right now, am I prepared to die? Am I prepared to die? When I die, if it is next week, next year, or today, am I ready to say, I know I'm right with my maker because I believe what he said. And he said this. Christ could take our sins and pay for them. The just, the righteous one, dies for the unjust, the unrighteous one. That's me. I'm now going to say, I'm going to stand before my maker at the end of this life, and I'm going to be accepted because Christ has paid the penalty of sin for me. That's not the way most people think. The reason my neighbor's afraid to die, and the reason I'm not afraid to die, is because I know that when I meet my maker, right, I recognize I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God. My sins have been appended to the cross. Jesus cried out, it is finished, to telestai in Greek, and it's done. It's been paid in full. My neighbor's only hoping and banking. It's one of the reasons he didn't like to think about death. He didn't like to think about death because he thinks, like Paul said, that this is all there is. This is this life is all they have. And I got to get back to the intro of this sermon. Listen, are you distinctively different than your next door neighbors? Are you in your heart of hearts not afraid of death? It's going to change everything. Right, It doesn't give us the right, obviously, and some of you might accuse me of this. It doesn't give you the right to be frivolous and ridiculous and juggle with loaded, you know, nine uh, millimeter Glocks, you know, or, 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 you know, I don't know, jump off of the Empire State Building, right? We don't test the Lord in terms of our safety. And so obviously, even in the midst of this COVID thing, I'm great. I'll take some, I'll take some precautions. I'll do what I can. But you know what? I'm not afraid of dying and neither are you. 
Matter of fact, you see death, don't you, as gain, because no longer are you going to be in this seeing through a glass dimly and this long-distance relationship, I like to say, with the second and first person of the Godhead. I want to be in a place where Christ is. I want to be where the sin and the effects of sin is is gone. And, and it's reverberating big time here on this earth. And so for me to die is gain. Don't get a right to kill myself. I'm not going to go out. We're not going to drink the, the Kool-Aid and, 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 and knock, you know, out, knock ourselves out of this, this planet. Uh, obviously, that's wrong. It's murder. I, you know, I don't have a death wish in that regard, but I do have a death wish in the sense that I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be done. But if I stay on in the flesh, the Bible says I got work to do. So we're going to do our work, but I'm not afraid of death. And you need to look yourself in the mirror and say, are you? And you need to say, as a Christian, I've been freed from that enslavement of fear of death. And this comes by dealing with these issues in verses 7 through 11. Do you know that the payment and the wrath for your sins, your iniquities and your secret sins, have been paid for? Hey, prepare. Let all the trouble of this life remind you of the consequences of something that is so much worse in the next life as you stand before, I mean, stand naked before the holy and absolutely perfect God of the universe. Back to our passage. Here comes the good stuff, right? Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let's just start with that. Um, Wisdom is not fear. And we'll get into that. Clearly, this is going to be everything from verses 12 to the end of this are all about something that's just incompatible with fear. So I, I'm going to put it this way and then I make four sub points here. So I got number one, what, how did I word that? Face death, right? And then number two, fully prepare yourself for death, right? I'm going to fully prepare myself. And then number three, I'm going to live between now and the time I die. If I die next week, today, whatever, die 10 years from now, whatever it is for me, I'm going to live without fear. I'm going to live without fear, okay? The first thing, verse 12, let's make four subpoints. The first one comes from verse 12. And that is, I'm going to try to make every day count. I'm going to make every day count. I already quoted Philippians chapter 1 when he says, To live is Christ, to die is gain. I want to live for Christ now. I want to do everything I can for what the Bible says Christ's agenda would be in my life and in my world. But to die would be so much better. He says, I don't know which to choose. I'd like to stay on and do fruitful work and, and, and serve Christ, but... Man, to die would be just so much better. But he says, I'll stay on. And I think God's going to get me out of this prison in Rome, Paul says in that prison epistle. And I'm going to go about doing more work. Which, of course, if you know the history of the New Testament, that's exactly what happens. And he goes out and he does more work for God. Good work. So I'm saying this. I'm going to make every day count. I want a heart of wisdom. And the way to get wisdom is to know you don't have a lot of time left. I mean, every day, uh, I saw a bunch of people in that I want to... Um, drive through this week and uh, talk about, you know, a lot of people I had a chance to talk about my life or my work or what's going on here and said, yeah, I've been really busy and uh, I guess I'm busy all the time, but the the day, you know, when I look at my watch to see how the day's progressing, um, you know, it goes by so quick because I, I have so many things to do and I know you all know that experience, maybe not now, some of you may be in a slower pace, but um, if I don't look at my watch, as a matter of fact, I, I'm the kind of guy who has alarms going off. I, I have a alarm that goes off verbally telling me every hour, right? It's nine o'clock. It's 10 o'clock. It's 11 o'clock. It's 12 o'clock. And, and, and that just reminds me, man, I got time and it's clicking away. And in my day, I know I got to, I want to get as much done before I got to get home and, 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 you know, got my domestic life and have dinner and all that. So I want to get as much as I can done today. And one of the things that helps me is remembering 
that sequence of time. And I like the announcement on my computer telling me, you know, it's two o'clock because I don't know, did I make good use of that last hour? That's what's going on here in giving us uh, this sense of, of, of the progression of our lives. And I hope you realize, even if there is no pandemic and no earthquake where beams don't fall on your head and kill you, uh, you do recognize that we don't have long. And the average person in America, I guess if you factor in men and women, probably somewhere, you know, in the mid seventies, that's not a lot of time. I put that into, into days here. Let's see. How many days do you have? Um, I thought I put that in days. I didn't. I've done it before, though. And the bottom line is, I think it's 83,000 days. Um, that's not a lot of days when you think about how many you've spent, right? I mean, by the time you're, you know, in college, you've been through a quarter of your life. The time you're in your 30s, you're at halftime, you know. If you're 40s, 50 years old, you're, I mean, fourth quarter starting. If you're over 70, of course, you should picture the two-minute warning sounding. And that's if all goes well for you. Um, it just so happens that it, in our day, right, and we've had it go lower depending on when you live in industrialized uh, world. And now, you know, thanks to a lot of things, health and nutrition and medicine, we, we live about between this, which is interesting, just so happens to be 70 and 80. Um, we need to number our days. As a matter of fact, there's a passage, another passage I'd like you to look at. We haven't turned to any cross-references. Verse 39, I'm sorry, Psalm 39. Um, Psalm 39, verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Now, of course, God's not going to tell me how many days I got left, but I know that I'm not going to be here a hundred years from now. Uh, matter of fact, I don't plan to be here, whatever, what's my age? I'm I, probably 20, 30 years from now, I'll be gone. Uh, and that's if everything goes well. Maybe gone in 20 minutes for all I know. But um, the whole point is, I'm fleeting. I'm not going to be here long. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths. If you know your Bible, you often hear about cubits. Cubit. A cubit is between uh, your, your finger and your elbow. That's like, you know, yards or even feet. We, we have those measurements. Well, you want to talk about a handbreadth is, that's just your your finger and your thumb. That's like talking in terms of inches. And so the point is, it's just, my, my life is really short. Um, my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, right? And James picks up on that to use that illustration. Our hands, our life is like a vapor. Verse six, surely man goes about as a shadow. Uh, surely there's nothing, uh, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. The idea of us uh, looking through our lives and realizing that our life is fleeting, um, reminds me if my computer tells me it's three o'clock and I know I only have a few more hours to get things done today, uh, I'm going to like do it now, get it done now, get to work now. And I don't like some of the mentality that's come through this COVID shutdown that I hear from Christians. And I've already preached on this, but, uh, of slowing down. Oh, it's great. You know, more puzzle time. And you've heard me rant on that biblically. I think God has made us to work. He didn't make us to idle. That's the name of that sermon I preached. And I want us to realize, um, when I think about what death, considering our mortality should do, it's not going to make me slow down. It's not going to make me think about slowing down. It's going to make me think about being more productive for me to live is Christ to die is gain. If I live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
And so that should be our perspective and our mentality. And I would encourage you, uh, the sub-point here is to make every day count. What are you going to do? What are you going to do today? What are you going to do this week? What are you going to do this month for the Lord? Make those plans and then put the little asterisk at the end, as James taught us, and say, if the Lord wills, don't just say it, mean it, and make today count. Back to our passage. Uh, that may have been redundant there, but but I went there, so there it goes. Psalm 90, Moses says, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses is saying, We don't want much time. Make it count, even here in the desert. Verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. I guess I've dealt with this, but this sub-point, I marked it out this way. Verse 13, to, 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 to prepare, to turn and trust. I mean, that's very specific there, right? Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on us. We need you to come back, show us favor, have pity on us. That's a built-in acknowledgement of their sin. And I, I just, I guess I've dealt with that. But the biblical words of the gospel are repentance and faith, turning and trusting. So make sure you've turned and trusted. Live without fear. I'm going to live without fear by making every day count, right? By making sure I'm prepared. I've turned and trusted. And then verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. May we rejoice. I lost my place here. May we rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us. Uh, And for as many years as we've seen evil. Seen a lot of bad. Seen a lot of bad things. Refresh us. Remind us of your love. Um, I, I just can't help but think the passage I quoted at the outset in Hebrews chapter 2, that if you were to positively state what we're freed from, an enslavement to sin, then what is the opposite of that, right? It's the, it, you know, it's the really ability to celebrate life, to live from now until my death with a, 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 you know, a fearlessness, a joy. Um, I really think that we need to work more at recognizing with all the bad and trouble in this world, even if I know that half the church is going to die in a pestilence, some, some pandemic, uh, we're going to live every day with joy. We're going to purposely choose joy in the midst of this life. And I know God loves us, right? And I know that he is going to not only uh, make us glad as many days as he's afflicted us, right? We've had a lot of trouble in this world. Uh, it's even more than that. At the end of that Psalm, Psalm 23, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil for you are with me, right? Your rod, your staff, your, they comfort me. At the end of that, right? It says, you know, this, this surely goodness and mercy will follow me. I think I quoted this last week, all the days of our life. Um, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord for a lot of days. No, we shall dwell in the house of the Lord for some years. No, we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the good news is, as it says in Romans 8.18, is that the present sufferings, man, are nothing worthy of comparing to the, to the, the glory, the greatness, the, the majesty, the, the, the fulfillment, the pleasure, the, the gratification that is to be revealed to us. So we live in, in joy. We don't live in fear. And then lastly, the sub-points, you're kind of tracking those. Um, make every day count. Turn and trust. Choose joy. Live with joy. However you want to jot that down. And then lastly here, look at verse verses 16 and 17. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands, Right? And establish the work of our hands upon us. And yes, establish the work of our hands. We want to be productive. right? And that kind of 
echoes the first sub-point in verse 12 there, make every day count, but I just put it down that way. I, I want to live productively, and I want to see these concepts of power and be in favor, which, by the way, that Hebrew word is beauty, the, the beauty of God, the favor of God, the establishment of the fruitful production of my work. I want it to count. I want it to be good. Uh, it was great for me to catch up with some people on that I want to drive through this week, and you know, I, I tried to ask a lot of people, you know, how's your work going, and are you still employed, and how are things, and it's just good to see our people reflecting that uh, sermon. We talked about the, the work ethic that God has called us to. They, they want to be productive. They want their work to be utilized for the glory of God. And obviously, their kids, they're bringing them here because they are celebrating all the verses they've learned. And, you know, they, they're living for the Lord. It's just so gratifying to see that. And I just, I want to live productively. I want you to live productively. I want you to see God's favor, the beauty of God working among us as we we live without fear. So face death. Fully prepare, live without fear. Can I just quote a few passages as we wrap this up? It's getting long, but jot these three references down and let me just read them to you. Second Timothy chapter one, verse ten. It says, Now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Right? And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That'd be a good memory verse, but if we think about what that verse says, right? We are going to die. People you know are going to die. Right? Barring the, the, the return of Christ, all of us are going to go through this thing called death. And, and listen to that word. I mean, what, is, what does this mean? It just has a, it gives us a whole different perspective, right? And which now has been manifested through the appearing, obviously we're breaking into a sentence, through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Are you a recipient of the gospel? Did you respond rightly to the gospel? Are you, have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ? Think about what that's saying. Death has been abolished for you. Your neighbor? Nope. Society? Nope. Writer of the headlines? Nope. Guys on the newscast? Nope. Right? You know, the average person in our society, they don't have death abolished. We're saying, yeah, my body's going to stop breathing uh, and I'm going to die, but death has been abolished. He's brought light, life and immortality to light through the gospel. I said three verses. Let me give you another one. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Great way to end this just with some scripture. Uh, Jesus defines himself this way. I'm the living one, Jesus says. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. I have the key to death and Hades. I have the key. Right? You don't have to be locked up there. Death is not something that you are subject to, not in the way that the non-Christian is. Uh, there's no judgment in Hades. There's no judgment in a place of, of judgment for your sins. I got the keys. Right? I want to be with the guy who's got the key. If I'm in jail, I want the guy with the keys to be my friend. He's going to... Get me out. I'm allied with Christ. Most people are going to try to stand before God on their own. Isn't going to work. You and I, we have Christ, the living one. He died and went through physical death, and he's alive now forevermore, and he's got the keys to death and Hades. All right, third passage I want you to jot down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of my favorites. Actually, it's several verses. Um Verse 50, 50 through 57. Let me just read this for you as we close. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, right? at least the fallen flesh and blood that we have, nor does the perishable, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We're going to a place that's not going to perish. We can't get there in these bodies. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, the euphemism for death. We're not all going to die, right? Most people will. But at the end, right, there's going to be a generation. Maybe that's us. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And so we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Now he's going to quote from Isaiah 25. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, this is Hosea 13 now, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Right? That's The world does not have that. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Right? The law says the wages of sin is death. You've done sin. There's secret sins. There's iniquities in your life. Right? The sting of death, that's the problem, is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We've got judgment coming. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pregnant, full of truth relating to what we've talked about, facing our sins and having the forgiveness laid on the Lamb of God. We don't have that problem anymore. Death is not a problem for you. Death is not a problem for me. Verse 58. Therefore, we often quote these two verses, or this verse, 58, divorced from the context. But here's what verse 58 says. After all of that, if that's how death is to be viewed. This is Psalm 90, right? In a a verse. Here it comes. Then my beloved brothers, therefore my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, right? Unshaken, not afraid always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's a great verse. right? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, let me quote it right, your labor is not in vain. Uh, Christian, live like a Christian, would you? Be a Christian. Live like a Christian. Christians are not enslaved to the fear of death. Get over that. We ought to be the most fearless people on this planet. And if everyone is dying around us, we are not panicked. We are not afraid, right? The fear, you want to fear something, we fear for our neighbors and friends. We want them to come to trust and faith in Christ. Um, Just before I sat down to record this, I'm on the phone dealing with a family, um, an aneurysm and and, and, and near death. It's just, it was, it was a tough phone call, but timely in the sense I'm thinking, yeah, this, this is what it's all about. I mean, this is what we all are going to face. Right? We're going to deal with this, and we're going to deal with it as Christians triumphantly. Sad to lose people. Get that. But I'm ready. You need to be ready. We get up from our chair, get up from the couch, and we live our lives productively for the Lord. We're immovable, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and our work for God is going to be rewarded. We live for eternity. So keep your focus where it needs to be. And hopefully Psalm 90 will be a passage that uh, you'll not only remember in its historic context, but you'll remember even as it relates to the threat of pandemics or earthquakes or fires or floods, that God has us as his people freed from the enslavement to the fear of death. Let's pray. God, we want to get this nailed in our life. We really do want to have it completely where it needs to be where we are fearless Christians, knowing that death is not only something we don't fear, it's something that we welcome in the sense that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is, as Paul said, so much better. We can't wait to be done here on this earth that we can get on and live real life 
take hold of, as Paul said, life that is truly life, the life that lies beyond this grave. So God, in the meantime, we want to live every day with joy, we want to live productively, we want to live wisely, we want to make the most of every day. Help us to do that joyfully without fear. Make our lives productive, we pray in Jesus' name.